welcome to the Dad Strength Podcast, helping you take care of yourself so that you can be present for your people. The Dad Strength Podcast is an Unlearning Network production. My name is Jeff Gervitz, and I've got my critical thinking hat on and my fat burning pants. I needed both. I needed the full outfit because of today's guest. But before I tell you who that is, I have a question for you. Are we there yet? This is not a cliche or not just a cliche. It's something my son asks me all the time when we're traveling. And my answer is always some variation on a lie. I usually say, yes, we've arrived. We're pulling into the driveway right now. Uh, It's clearly untrue, uh, but it does a couple of things. One, it shuts down the line of questioning, which helps when you're trying not to crash the car. And second, it sets up Um, part of a larger ongoing discussion that we have, which is, you know, not everything that is presented to you is true. Uh, We were watching, uh, we watched Bumblebee, the Transformers movie recently. And one of the characters, you know, they're the human scientists are collaborating with the Decepticons, with the bad guys. And um, he's like, can we trust these guys? They literally call themselves Decepticons. That doesn't set off any red flags. And I love that. And the truth is, in real life, it's not always as clear. We don't always have a label on this stuff or maybe an accurate label. There's some things that I really wanted to tackle in the first season of the Dad's Rank podcast. And one of those is how to not just to think about scientific research, but to look for the red flags in people who are claiming to really understand it or who are suddenly experts in poking holes in the stuff that they don't agree with. But it's all huge and complex. And, you know, the truth is any one of these discussion points that gets bandied about on social media can easily be an entire full-time academic career. And I don't care who you are, there's going to be stuff that is over your head. And even if you are absolutely brilliant, it's going to be beyond the timeline of what you're willing or able to invest in, right? You have a life and that's good. I support, I support. So in some ways, I think that we are better equipped to look for our own kinds of red flags when it comes to people claiming expertise. And if we're really good about it, I mean, like really humble and disciplined, then we can apply this to our own thinking too, which is tough. Uh, And a lot of heroes out there, people with huge fan bases and big brains uh, will not or cannot do that. Okay, so that's kind of where I'm going. We spoke to James Heathers in an earlier episode, and that was a lot of fun. But this one is, you know, like I said, a little bit less about the research and more about how to think about the folks poking holes in it. Uh, My guest, Mike T. Nelson, has a PhD. Uh, He teaches a certification program on metabolic flexibility. He is a college instructor and consultant. He is a metalhead. He is a major kite boarder. He is the host of the Flex Diet Podcast, and I'll I'll link to that in the show notes. And to me, mostly, he's a mensch. He's just a sweet man Um, and one of the most approachable, unpretentious people out there in the industry in spite of his incredible knowledge. And I'm pleased as punch to have the guy. Before we dive in, I want to shout out me. I will be hosting an in-person workshop for high-performing dads with ADHD. I have a lot to say on the subject. And mostly, I just want to get these guys into a room 
and leverage their collective strengths. It is a neurotypical world out there and learning how to leverage a neuro spicy brain is like unlocking a superpower. And I want to really do that. I think it makes the world a better place. To learn about that, you can go to dadstrength.com slash ADHD. Uh, you can fill out the form and send me any questions you have. I'd love to talk to you about it. Now for my interview with Mike T. Nelson. Let's get into it. The biggest issue, I think, is that we have politicized science and that is not going to end well, right? Because now in the past, we, there was disagreements about data. Everybody had their own opinions. But, and you know, like if you've been to any top academic conference, take your pick of whatever topic, you'll see like legit people who are the top researchers in the field who you know have both read the same study. They're both in the same field. They're collecting data. They've been doing it for decades. And they may have a disagreement about the exact same paper, right? But at least I felt like that was a way of working it out because you're looking at the same data set, you know that they're experts in their field, where now it seems like that's kind of just gone by the wayside, right? There isn't really any discussion of <clears throat> data per se. It's, oh, I'm on the right side or I'm on the left side. So therefore I have to believe this. It just seems like everything is trying to be like super polarized without an actual discussion of like, what does the data say? And people will sometimes then pick out one piece of data that agrees with them on a preprint server that maybe later gets retracted. Hey, if you're listening to this and you're thinking this is a little bit intimidating, maybe you've never cracked a research study before, don't sweat it. It's more accessible than you think. There's lots of stuff you can find for free. ResearchGate.net is one of my favorite places. And you don't have to be an expert um, to read the abstract and read the conclusion or the summary or discussion, right? The research methodology might be a lot. And, uh, you know, honestly, it's, it's not our job to be able to break down the regression analysis or whatever else. That's Leave that for professional academics or researchers and for everyone else. Just see if you can get a gist of it and read a bunch of stuff and get a flavor for where is the research at right now. That will give you a start. And then listen to smart people like Mike, the non-dogmatic, the curious, the people who remember what the point of all of this is. And it will just help you form a more global and solid worldview of what is going on in an area that you are interested in. So let's say I'm pretty kind of science-minded person and I, I have <clears throat> traditionally kind of looked at evidence, but I've also got strong political opinions. Um, how do I, how do I temper those two things? Yeah. The first question I think of is, can you separate them? Which most people can't. Right. And I've even had to do this on a personal level, right? So can I separate the person from their ideas, right? Because we tend to think of them as the same thing. And I think if you can, you're going to be one step ahead, right? And the other part is, are you open to changing your mind? Are you looking for data to disprove your current hypothesis, or are you just looking for data to bolster your already steadfast opinion that you just want more data to prove that you're right? <laughs> and so I think those are kind of the most important things, right? And for people listening, 
the best analogy I ever heard of science was from Dr. Pat Davidson, where it's like, imagine you've got all these theories are just like little bowling pins. So the process of science is try to knock down one of the pins, right? I'm trying to disprove this particular theory. Oh, we did this couple of experiments. Yep. Disprove that. That's not true. Nope. Oh, disprove that. That's not true. And what you're left with is maybe one or two pins that you just can't really disprove. So over time, yeah, those things are probably correct, right? Where I think a lot of times in the, the public view is we're trying to collect data to prove, quote unquote, that we are correct. And all it really takes is one piece of data to invalidate a whole bunch. You know, if you think of yourself as a tough person, if you have the eye of the tiger, if you are a rugged individual, all that uh, hardcore masculine stuff means you can take a punch, right? It means you're resilient. And I would suggest that your ideas have to be equally tough. And so the concepts you use, the frameworks you build your life around, all of that needs to be pressure tested early and often. We need to take these ideas that we hold kind of precious and then bang them with a hammer and kick their tires and see if they hold up. Because if we do this early and they don't, okay, we, we move along, we find something else uh, that stands up. But if all we do instead is sort of polish them and buff them and get them looking good and never really submit them to any deep pressure testing, it's a much bigger thing. It's a much worse thing, really, isn't it? To be years down the road and then find out that these ideas, and sometimes we've seen this, people build their careers around an idea, around a belief. And when it's not true, more often than not, in my experience, people double down as opposed to changing their viewpoint. It's like the story of the, the swans, right? Your hypothesis is, oh, all swans are white. All right, so you spend your whole life running around the whole world, collecting all these thousands of pictures of white swans. And then, you know, some guy from some backwoods state and whatever, like posts a picture of a black swan on the internet. And like, all oh, your research now is ruined, right? Because it took one piece of data to invalidate like your life's work. When you should have been running around looking for anything that's not a white swan, right? You should have been looking for data to disprove your theory not trying to only collect data that that agrees and proves your theory. Okay, but we need, <laughs> when we talk about disproving something or dismissing something, we need some standards for that, right? Correct. Talk to me about that. Talk to me about not just coming in and, and looking at the faintest signal and then and dismissing something outright. Right. And that's where it gets really messy, right? Because then it's like, okay, what level of data or consensus do you need? And it's, that's always my question I've asked, just even different researchers, uh, even about stuff that I've worked on. I'm like, okay, they're like, well, I don't agree with this. I'm like, well, we have this data, this data, that data. Like what, how much data would you need to see? You know, so in research, we call this as a consensus. And the reality is, there's no agreed upon what is a consensus, one study, two studies, three studies, four studies. And like you said, what is the quality of the studies? Was it done in, you know, one leg anemic mice? Was it done in actual humans? Does the population represent who you're actually talking about? You know, especially if you're talking about general population versus elite athletes. And that's where a lot of the nuance, I think, just gets lost because it's very easy then to be like, oh, look at this data. Ah, I'm going to hang my hat on this piece of data. And then you read the study and you're like, no, that data is like, shit. <laughs> <laughs> 
you know, and the reality is a lot of it is somewhere in between, right? You may have a small N in, in humans, so it's okay, but, you know, the power is not really great on that study. And so if you're hypercritical of stuff, you can almost always argue that, well, we need more data. This was done only in, you know, 12 human subjects. We need 24, 36, you know, we need six months of long-term data. Nope, we need a year. Nope, we need a year and a half, right? And so that's <clears throat> the hard part of, you can always argue for more. And at some point, you kind of have to make a decision based on incomplete data, right? Because you're never going to have the perfect data set. You're never going to have these super ultra high confidence intervals, like the best done multiple studies, like replicated by, you know, different labs across the U.S., all that stuff's great. And do we need it? Yeah, it'd be awesome. But the reality is a lot of those things are probably just never going to happen in your lifetime either. So I think you're always kind of left with semi-incomplete data. And each person kind of has their own threshold of what they think is a consensus. And as long as I think they're stating, here's my consensus and here's what it's based on, you can have a discussion then about it. Where I think a lot of people are like, we allowed one particular study and that's what they hang their hat on and that's what they're going with. We kind of watched as people went from, um, you know, be, becoming suddenly expert epidemiologists or social yeah. justice <laughs> experts uh, to more recently to experts on research methodology. Mm -hmm. um, and then, and then sometimes constitutional law uh, as, as well. It's, it's been a busy, busy group of people. Yes. Um, so, yeah. and then you ask them like, how many people read the study? And then it's just like crickets. I'm like, if you haven't even read the study yet, we won't even talk about, do you have a skill set to comprehend or understand or it is in your area? Like, I mean, a lot of times these arguments are about studies that people will talk about, but they've never actually even read the full study. So it's like, okay. <laughs> yeah, not, not all of it is, is publicly available. Sometimes you need yeah. access to, to PubMed or whatever else. And I'm, I mean, even within the researchers, I know it's, it's not like looking, I, I mean, there can be some glaring errors. You can spot the easy stuff, but um, sometimes you really need like in the woods expertise um, and like, like a pretty significant amount of time to really um, uh, run it. So let me ask you something a little more philosophical. And that is, mm -hmm. I have some real questions about this, this research that I'm looking at, especially since it doesn't agree with what I think, how do we uh, apply the same standard across the board for the stuff we agree with versus the stuff we don't agree with? Yeah, it's, it's tricky. Um, so I think the first thing what I do personally is try to think about, so I do a lot of work on metabolic flexibility. So I've thought for many years that if metabolic flexibility gets disproved as an overall theory, uh, am I okay with that? Right. So the first thing is I get really nervous if someone is their name is what they do, right? They're keto Bob or, you know, whatever. It's like, that's great. If that's what you want to do, cool. But what, how open do I think you're going to be at data that may disprove what you've built your entire life on, especially if they have a business on it? That's how they provide for their family. You know, there's a lot of, unconscious things that get wrapped up into that where even if you try to be very fair and non-biased it's going to be really hard right so i even think about that with clients you know with clients 
if I can get supplements at a discount, I'll just give them to them. I don't like doing affiliate stuff with clients. I will for other, you know, just mass populations because I can't answer all their questions and everything else per se. But I, I try to remove as much of a bias as I can, even if I think that's a conscious or unconscious bias. And then after that, it's back to, do you have the skill set to to read it? Right? Do you know what you're looking for? Do you have some idea of how studies are done? Have you conducted any studies yourself? And as much as I even almost hate to say this, if you don't have that skill set, you may have to kind of defer to expert opinion as much as it completely, utterly pains me to say that. I also understand that most people are not going to go back and take research methods classes, are not going to spend hours upon hours reading through full studies in PubMed. And if they did, a lot of people just don't have the skill set, right? It'd be like me walking into my accountant's office and going, yeah, let me do your job for the day. I have no freaking idea about any tax law. You could hand me the whole tax law book. I could read it and I, I would be still completely, probably utterly worthless. Um, and so that's where I think it, as much as I hate to tell people to depend upon expert opinion, the reality is I think that's what most people are going to end up doing. And that's probably a shortcut that they're going to use. And so then it just depends upon who are you actually uh, following and what are their sources and what are things to look for, like all the things we just talked about, right? What are their inherent biases, right? And so there's many people in the industry we could we've had discussions with and I've sent them like reams of data. One person in particular, I send him seven umbrella meta analyses on a topic, right? So not just a meta analysis, a collection of studies, like a kind of a collection of a collection of studies, multiple ones, different places, like thousands of people enrolled in these studies. And he's like, no, no, that's all crap. I don't believe any of that. You know, and so it's because it, his opinion was very much the opposite. His whole platform was built upon that. So it's it's hard. So one way you can do is whatever expert you use is, you know, challenge them on an opposite viewpoint. And I'm not saying they should agree or disagree. I'm more interested in, will they even look at the data? Will they take time to consider it? And what is their response to other people that conflict with them, even online? Right. If they're extremely dismissive immediately, like all the time across the board, that makes me very nervous because that would be an indicator that they're probably not really going to change their mind based on any new data. I think that's a really good um, heuristic to use. Yeah. And that's the, the tough part. Okay, so let, let's say we've got a person and they're, they're intelligent. They want to, they, they are suspicious of the, the body of evidence that's being presented, you know, and they want to come at it, at you with a different opinion, you know, what, what would your recommendation be to even for them to, um, ha, uh, to kind of earn the right to say, I have a cogent viewpoint on this and, and you should listen to me. You saw the meme, I'm sure the other day when, when, um, uh, it was a guy on a toilet going uh, like Facebook is down. How am I supposed to do my research? <laughs> because there are, are a lot of people that, you know, whatever, they, they found some social media memes and like now they, <laughs> they feel educated. So if you are sort of earnest in, in learning this stuff, what, like what is your advice? 
Yeah. So my internal litmus test that I kind of use personally is, are you self-motivated enough to go back and learn the basics, right? Because it's very easy now to pick any topic, you know, fitness, whatever, that the stuff presented is usually the quote unquote higher end, more advanced kind of, you know, sexy type stuff. And I think you can do a lot of internet reading and talk to other experts and get a probably an okay viewpoint of the more complicated end of it. But those people who have been self-educated, not all of them, there's exceptions to this rule, of course. I'll notice when you talk with them that like they'll have what I call leaps of logic. They'll start here and they'll end up over this massive chasm. But in their brain, it was just like, you know, a, a one inch jump right? Because they don't understand the background. They're not skilled in the kind of the basics of what's going on. So, you know, one of the advice I've had for these exercise fizz is go buy a used textbook from Amazon, you know, buy a 2018 edition, you could probably get it for $10, right? There's not much difference in the last three years, at least in textbook status. And can you get an under, understanding of the basics, right? Can you go back to biochemistry? Can you make sure that you're really solid on the basics and advance um, from there? And that's hard. It's not sexy. It's boring. It takes a lot of work. No one's going to reward you for it either, right? Because no one's really interested in that. But to me, the people who have taken that time, which is a pro of you know formal education because you're kind of forced to do it at that point, I just think that you'll notice they have less holes in their their logic, right? They'll know that, okay, I went from here to here, but I, I, I can explain why I did that. And I understand that that's a really big leap and I'm out on the end of the branch here, right? Where some other people are like, no, I'm in the middle of the tree, I'm fine. It's like, no, no, you're way out on the branch like that's about ready to fall off. But they have skipped a lot of the basics and they don't realize that that's the position of where they're at. Okay, I think this is a really important point. And so I want to I want to see if we can tease this out a little bit more because, yeah, it, it's like you you would understand if you're if you're really well versed in the subject matter, um, even if you've got a great process and you feel like you've got great evidence or you know or, or sort of a logical uh, train of thought taking you there, you also understand that what you're saying is counter to mainstream consensus on a topic, and so. Do you, do you have a responsibility to actually provide a higher standard of thought or evidence in these cases? Do you have to do you have to do even better? Yes, I would say yes, right. Um, and I think the issue is compounded by the internet. In my opinion, is full of a bunch of parrots. All right, people will hear one thing and they'll just repeat it. And I'm you know I'm I'm no exception to this. I'm guilty of it also. I have a freaking notebooks filled full of stuff that I'm not even sure is true anymore. But I've heard XYZ people say it and hell, I've even repeated some of it. And then you wake up in the middle of the night at three in the morning and go, Oh my God, but is that really true or not? Did, am I one of the parrots too? You know, <laughs> so it, it happens to everyone. I'm not saying I'm immune to it by any means. Uh, but you know, the air, the things that you care about, can you take the time to go back and, and look look at them in detail, read the studies, you know, do the work, right? Because it's very easy to, and humans have this flaw where we know if we hear something a thousand times, it could be completely, utterly false. But the more we hear it, the more we kind of subconsciously think that it's true, 
right? Even though logically we know that that doesn't make sense, it, it's just one of those weird things of how humans are wired that it, it just happens, right? So if you hear X stated, you know, 20 times by 17 different experts, they could all be completely, utterly wrong. But you're like, oh, I think that's probably right, right? And if you were to guess yeah, and hedge your bets and you didn't know anything else, yeah, okay, that's probably a good direction to go. However, it doesn't mean that it's it's correct because a lot of them could be just parodying one from the next from the next, right? So it's back to the discussion we had about, okay, what is that based on? What data are you you know making these you know conclusions from? Yeah. You know, I think back to that uh, kind of 70s era, old school, before we get too too fussy with, uh, you know, uh, ethics and research for social <laughs> psychology. Some of these experiments where it's like, you, you know, you had a group of people saying, are these lines the same length? I don't know if that was Milgram. Yeah. I don't remember who did that, but, you know, and and, and everybody's applying. And, and, and so, yeah, uh, it, it, it may not feel 100% correct, but it definitely feels less radical once you've heard an incorrect opinion. Totally. hundred times. Yeah. Yeah. It's tricky, man. Um, yeah. And it's a social pressure, right? That, that humans are wired to want to be included in, in the tribe. That's just, you know, cause back in the day, if you got outcast from the tribe and you're going to hang out by yourself, odds are you're not going to make it. You're dead. <laughs> so we're, we're, we're still wired that way as much as it doesn't seem like it. Sometimes when you go uh, online, you know, even the people who are very, radical they have their own tribe right so it's not like they're rarely just a single outcast by themselves right they appear that way and that's what they're presenting but then they have all these other people behind them so they've just branched off and kind of created their own tribe yeah so you might have an extreme opinion that within a, a particular online community might feel like middle of the road they're centrist right. in their world yes so let me pivot here i would love for you to just give us a little background, kind of uh, ba basically where it started, how it's going. Like, like, tell me about the beginnings of your career. It's it's heartened me a fair bit because you've been able to actually build a, like a pretty solid career out of being not dogmatic uh, <laughs> and not taking these extreme positions. So, talk about your educational path and kind of where you where you've gone professionally. Yeah, I mean, like most guys, I started off lifting because I got squashed by the bar in high school for <laughs> bench press. And at the time it was like, you know, completely humiliating, but I was excited. because I'm like, Oh, maybe, maybe he'll teach us like how to do something. No, it was just like testing. You know, it was like, you're, you're old enough around my age to remember the, the physical fitness exam or the physical fitness test. And in theory, it's a good idea, right? Let's see what the physical status of these students are. And it would be great if you actually told people how to train for it, like how to get better at least where I was at, it was just, okay, we're going to take these three days and test you. And if you suck, you just get humiliated by everybody else in the class. And no one shows you how to actually get better. So I remember the worst one I hated was the, the pull-up test. <clears throat> so hang for the pull-up bar. He's like, okay, you can start now. And I'm like, I, I am starting. He's like, but you haven't moved. I'm like, I, I, I can't. So fast forward from there, I went to, <clears throat> I went to college. <laughs> And I did a Bachelor of Arts in Natural Science, went to St. Scholastica in Duluth, Minnesota, which was great. And I remember we had to take like four or five PE credits. So they had a weightlifting class. So like the first quarter, I'm like, oh, no, it's my second quarter. I'm like, oh, this is great. I'm so excited. And so I enroll for it. 
you know, at the time, even in college, I was, you know, six, three weighed 153 pounds. So I looked like a, you know, eel shaped rake type looking person. And I wasn't one of those people that was very athletic and just really low body fat either. So it was just, I, I got the short end of both sticks. And so the instructor comes in and he's like, all right, we're going to teach you about weight training. He's looking around. He's like, all right. And some of you need to lose weight. And he looks at me and points and he goes, and holy shit, some of you need to gain weight. <laughs> I was like, oh, great. Thanks. And then, so day two, we come back and he's not there. I'm like, hey, what happened? Aren't we supposed to learn how to lift weights? And it was just the TA. He was like, yeah, here, just check into the gym and just do whatever you want. I was like, oh, man. So I, you know, like most guys did everything wrong, but I was excited because to me, like physiology was just fascinating. So as part of my undergrad, I took uh, anatomy and physiology. So we got to work on actual cadavers, which was amazing. And I ended up doing uh, two years after that, a postgraduate at Michigan Tech for uh, graduate school, which I did a uh, master's in mechanical engineering and finished that. So I did about seven and a half years of school full time, the first go round. And I remember even when I was at Michigan Tech, my third year, they just had a new exercise uh, physiology program. And so I go to the guy who's teaching, you know, 400 level X phys class. And I said, Hey, you know, can you sign me into my class in the class? And he looks at me and he goes, well, you've got the maximum number of credits and you have zero prereqs for this class at all. And I'm like, no, I don't want to grade or anything. I just, I just want to learn about exercise phys. And he's like, it's a 400 level class. Like, why do you want to do this? I'm like, oh, cause it's just so cool. And he's like, well, technically I can't sign you in. And I guess if you don't need credit, uh, just show up Monday, Wednesday, Friday at, at 11 and I won't kick you out of the class. I'm like, okay, perfect. <laughs> so when I finished, I uh, went back and started working for a medical technology company doing cardiovascular, uh, implantable pacemakers, defibrillators. And then started going back to school again. I started a PhD program for biomedical, did that for five and a half years, decided I didn't want to do any more math because the math part was horrible. And even though I completed almost all the classwork and then switched to exercise physiology uh, that fall. And oddly enough, I uh, got stuck with uh, math. So looking at heart rate variability, metabolic flexibility. And the reason I got stuck with those projects, which turned out to be great, is I was the only person who had any math <laughs> really in the, in the department. So it took seven years to finish that. Uh, along the way, I started training people, uh, personal training 2006 is like the official date. Did a bunch of in-person stuff, worked in gyms, transitioned more to online. And then now I teach for Rocky Mountain University and I'm uh, an associate professor at the Kerrigan Institute. Uh, I do mostly exercise, nutrition stuff with them and they do a lot of work in clinical neurology. What is metabolic flexibility? Yeah. So in the fitness world, everyone like wants to have whole tribes and everything associated with one particular macronutrient or just demonize said macronutrient. Like, oh, fat's bad. We go through the low fat craze and now, ooh, fat's the best fuel ever and it's keto, everything. Um, and the reality is the two main fuels your body is going to use in a healthy individual are both fats and carbohydrates. The metabolic flexibility is how well can you use carbohydrates on the right end of the spectrum? How well can you use fats on more of the left end of the spectrum? And then how well can you actually switch back and forth between those two? So if we're just hanging out, having this conversation, uh, fat's going to be a little bit better, more efficient fuel source. 
if we go to your gym and we start doing crazy 500 meter rows or a high intense uh, strength training session, then we want the ability to use carbohydrates at that point. We finish the session, we're just hanging out, chilling out. We want to downregulate to use fat again. So it's how well do you use both? And I, ideally, you want to maximize the use of both. It just depends upon what you're doing at that time. And that's actually a marker for both performance um, and health. So uh, probably nobody's asked you this for a while, <laughs> but, but you know, so I'm, I'm trying to bear in mind, it's not just uh, going to be fitness nerds listening to this. So I thought back immediately to uh, when I, you know, cause we kind of got started professionally around the same time and looking on treadmills and bikes and going the fat burning zone. Yes. <laughs> just un unpack that for a hot minute. Yeah. So the, the fat burning zone, is it a true thing in healthy individuals? Yes. Right. So what it's saying is that if, if we put you on a treadmill and you do just an all out sprint for 20 seconds, it is true that most of that is going to be burned from carbohydrates. So there's not as much as a percentage of fuel being used from fat. Now, if we start lowering the intensity to this you know, 60, 70, 80%, it depends on who you read, what you believe, this moderate intensity zone that yes, the amount of fat you burn as a percentage is going to be higher, right? So in the lab, we can measure this as something called MFO or maximal fat oxidation. What is the highest rate of fat you can use and run through your body? So that's useful, but the hard part is that people then translated that into, oh, bro, if I go to the gym and just do all this fat burning zone work, then I'll just automatically lose weight. And it can be helpful. But if you look at the total amount of calories you burn during that session, it's a few hundred, right? It's, it's, you know, if you get really crazy, maybe a little bit more three, 400, if you get nuts, um, but it's helpful. But again, it's a smaller part of the picture. And so I think it got misinterpreted as people want to find what is the single factor? What is the thing that's going to translate into results for me? And I think it got oversold by the exercise uh, community as the number one thing. And then now everything is kind of going back to it almost again, right? So you've been in fitness long enough to see like these trends of, oh, no, it's just, you know, slow, steady state aerobic stuff. That's what you do. Oh, no, that's the dumbest thing ever. Like you need to do high intensity intervals and you need to do multiple Tabatas per day and just like wind gates and just super crazy stuff. And then now we're seeing it kind of swing back the other end of like, Hey, you know, if you do too much high intensity, like you can really like get really burnt out and like, you know, torch your body. It's like, oh yeah. So we're back to hopefully what I think is sort of of a, a, a moderate uh, place. And then the last part too, is that I think people tend to view it through this lens of like, it's only calories, right? And that's obviously a component and obviously calories in calories out works for fat loss and weight loss and everything else. However, we tend to forget like what are the adaptations um, from it, right? So if you have a very low aerobic system, right, the main system that's providing your body energy, it'd be like um, driving around in a four-person car with like a lawnmower engine, right? You can just, just floor it all the time and you're probably not going to go real fast. Like if you remember the little three-cylinder Yugos they had for a while. Uh, but if you have a bigger engine, right, you can get more power from it. So if you have a bigger aerobic engine, you're going to have the ability to create more energy. You're going to feel better. 
probably going to move more. You're going to inherently burn more calories. So I tend to look at it from what is the adaptation or the component in your system that you might be missing that you would need to work on just like strength training, right? If you're, you know, want to get, add more muscle, you're probably going to have to lift weights, right? So I think if you have a very low, uh, aerobic max, what's called a VO two max, the volume of oxygen you can translate into energy, then working on that from just a pure adaptation standpoint, putting that bigger engine in your car, you're going to feel better. And I think that component got kind of lost and we just only look at like calories in calories out. So from a, a practical standpoint, someone's listening and they're like, I, you know, I got some blood work back. That is, uh, I got a clinical diagnosis of no bueno. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to lose fat um, without, without hype. You know, what is, what is your, you know, I know we're speaking generally, but what, what, is, yeah. your, what is your advice for this person? Uh, a couple of things. I mean, if they can work with a professional of some form, that's going to be probably the fastest and easiest. Um, but from the nutrition side, I usually tend to prioritize protein. I do what's called a four by 40 approach. Uh, if you're a guy, you can get four meals in at around 40 grams of protein. You're going to be doing pretty good, right? So if you're looking at lean sources of meat or things that once had eyeballs, like not to offend all the vegans, um, you have four to six ounces, you know, somewhere in there, do that four times. You're going to be, you're pretty good. You're going to be pretty close overall. Uh, and that's going to help you recover. That's going to provide satiety, et cetera. Um, and then from there on the exercise realm, I tend to look at a mix of some type of weight training and some type of aerobic performance. So the template I use a lot is Monday, Wednesday, Friday, you know, go lift some weight, do some heavier stuff. You want to throw a few Metcons or high intensity stuff in great. Um, that's going to be a little bit more on the carbohydrate use of the spectrum. Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday, eh, do some aerobic stuff. Like you, the old, what they call the talk test is pretty good. If you're doing aerobic work and you can have entire conversations, you probably need to up the intensity a little bit. If you can get out around a few words to a sentence and that's all you can get out, you're, you're probably around like the, the right intensity there. It's a rough metric, but it's, it's pretty accurate. Um, do some type of aerobic stuff that can be rowing, biking, um, cycling, running, maybe swimming. I think swimming is a great exercise, but most people don't have the technical prowess to really tax their aerobic system all that much. Um, and then, you know, cross country skiing versus climber, that kind of stuff. So old school, classic aerobic, you start low 10, 20 minutes. It doesn't have to be real, you know, heroic to start. And then just slowly scale that up, um, over time. Sunday would be a day just to take off and, you know, do your food prep for the week, get your protein ready. Um, yeah, there's always a bunch of things you can go into from there. Uh, aerobic training does help, uh, like blood lipids in terms of HDL. So high density lipoprotein, the core of good, um, cholesterol that is extremely variable though. Some people will see a pretty big bump from it. Some people won't. Um, and some people genetically have a very high HDL and they don't train worth a crap. Um, so there is a really big variation, but in general, if we're looking at you as an individual, it, mm, it's only really going to benefit you, you know, how much hard to say last part too, if your blood work is also a disaster exercise and better nutrition will help with your triglycerides, glucose management, all the other kind of factors that, that are an issue there. So, um, 
not so much for i mean there there's a bunch of sort of psycho-emotional stuff along for the ride but but i'll uh we'll we'll, we'll skip that i guess or i'll kind of fill it <laughs> through always gaps, <laughs> um you know through through the lens of physiology why is not like all intensity all the time the answer people sometimes think it is yeah two things so one it's out it's very easy to outstrip your capacity right so i explain to people <clears throat> i just sold my car but if i had my old 2001 volkswagen jetta and i redline it all the time i'm running to the grocery store like i'll get to the grocery store faster right i'll put out a, i'll burn a lot more gas but if it's a little four-cylinder engine, is it really designed to do that all the time, right? Versus if I have a 12-cylinder Ferrari and I redline it a lot, yeah, it's probably going to be able to handle it. It's probably going to be be okay. So if we go back to what is kind of the aerobic level, like how well is their engine made, a lot of people have a smaller aerobic level, but they're insisting on redlining it like all the time. And they're going to pay a higher cost for doing that. The second part, too, is that most of the time, if they look at the quality of work that's being done, it goes to shit real fast, right? So what you get better at is doing a lower quality of work. Like you're literally burning less calories if we use that as a metric, but it feels harder, right? It feels like it's really hard because, again, you're just kind of missing partially the skill and partially kind of the engine size to do that. So one thing I like to do with people is if they're doing higher intensity stuff, which is great to do, you only get to do more when you can show me that you can maintain the quality of that output, right? So I may put someone on a, a rower or something where I'm automatically getting feedback, right? So concept two rower is going to tell you in watts, literally how much power have you generated? So if we put you on a rower and say, all right, go all out for 30 seconds. And let's say you hit an average of 300 watts. Great. Now rest as long as you can. I want you to repeat that again within 90%, right? So you should be hitting close to 300 average again for those 30 seconds. And once you can't do that anymore, like you're done for the day. And what you'll find is like, even if you rested for three to five minutes or something very long, like you just don't have the capacity to go at that level again. Cool. That means you, you got the best out of your system you could for that day. You're done. We'll come back and do it again a different day. Or a lot of people just keep going. Like, oh, bro, if I cram the rest period shorter and it's going to feel harder. And if you look at their output, it just starts dropping. And then fast forward like two, three, four, five weeks, they're like, I don't know what's happening. Like, I feel tired all the time. I'm putting all this heroic amount of effort. I'm doing my due diligence. I'm trying really hard. I don't feel like I'm getting any better. And then the stimulus that they did or the output they actually got is actually getting worse, but they're losing capacity. I mean, they'll gain some, but it's starting to feel harder because the quality of work they did is starting to go down. And if your only solution is to try harder, you're, you're going to not end up in a fun place. <laughs> you get an A for effort, yeah, like a D for outcome. <laughs> Well, I want you to get A's in fat loss and in understanding scientific research and critiques of it. And I hope this episode has equipped you well. Thanks for hanging out with us today. Special thanks to my guest, Dr. Mike T. Nelson. Such a swell guy. Shout out to the Unlearning Network, our producers. 
If you are not already following, leaving ratings, all that stuff uh, for the Dad Strength Podcast, please do so. That helps a lot. And a reminder, if you're interested in joining me for an in-person workshop on high performers with ADHD, this is going to be in Toronto. You can go to dadstrength.com slash ADHD. I'll see you next time.